RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday the 26th of May. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. The minutes of the Federal Reserve's May meeting show policymakers debating the need for more rate hikes than currently anticipated. Fed officials discussed making multiple 50 basis points rate increases at the next several meetings to tackle surging inflation. They further noted that policy may have to move past the neutral level, which is neither accommodative or restrictive to economic growth. Yesterday, China held a national-level virtual meeting on economic stabilization measures. Attended by Vice Premiers Liu He and Hang Zheng, PBOC Governor Yi Gang, tens of thousands of officials and carried by state TV. At the meeting, Premier Li Keqiang told attendees that the mainland economy could struggle to record positive growth in the current quarter, and he urged officials to help companies resume production after COVID-19 lockdowns and for the country to achieve reasonable growth. Premier Li said the economy was to some degree worse than it than it had been at the start of the pandemic in early 2020, noting that unemployment for people aged 16 to 24 had reached a historic high of 18.2%. He also reported that corporate liquidations had surged more than 23% year-on-year in April, with private small and medium-sized enterprises, which account for half or more of economic output and employment, the hardest hit. Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry on Wednesday said that external demand outlook for the Singapore economy has weakened compared to three months ago. The MIT said the country's growth was likely to come in at the bottom end of its previous forecast of 3 to 5% in 2022 because of the war in Ukraine and continuing supply chain disruptions, which was exacerbating inflation. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Personal Wealth Advisor Enzio von Fahl and Lashar from BPVA Research. With a view from India is Toby Lawson, CEO of Societe Generale India. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks rose on Wednesday despite the Fed signaling interest rates could rise further than markets have been expecting. The S&P 500 climbed 1% to 3,979, recovering from earlier losses of 0.4%. The Dow added 192 points to end the day at 32,120. The Nasdaq Composite Index rose 1.5% to 11,435. All three indices are on track for a winning week after seven weeks of losses. After the bell, chipmaker NVIDIA became the latest company to revise Dow's second quarter earnings outlook because of the lockdowns in China and the war in Ukraine. Its shares fell 6% in after-hours trading. In Europe, the stock 600 index rose 0.6%. London's FTSE 100 climbed half a percent. And shares in Hong Kong closed with small gains as traders were unimpressed by Beijing's latest stimulus measures, which did little to alleviate fears over the impact of its zero-COVID policy on growth. The Hang Seng Index snapped a three-day losing streak to close 59 points, or a third of a percent higher, at 20,171. 
The tech index was up a third of a percent. The Shanghai Composite, that rose 1.2% to 3,107. Shares in Chinese short video group Guishou rose 5.4% in Hong Kong after the company beat estimates to post revenue growth of 24% in the first quarter of the year from a year ago. Shares in NetEase, one of China's leading internet and online game services providers, climbed over 3% after the group said its revenue for the first quarter rose 14.8% year on year. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 0.8% higher at $114.32 a barrel. Gold fell as the US dollar rose, ending 0.7% lower at $1,854 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield was unchanged at two and three quarter percent, and the US dollar index gained ground after three days of losses. The euro is trading half a percent lower, at close to one dollar seven cents. The buck's worth 127 and a quarter Japanese yen. One British pound buys one dollar 26 cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and 88 cents. In offshore markets, the Chinese yuan is at 6.71 versus the dollar, and Bitcoin is up slightly at 29 and a half thousand US dollars. Around Asia-Pacific stock markets, uh, first of all, in Australia, the SX200 is up about uh, 0.2% at the moment. The Nikkei 225 has risen half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is up 0.4%, but futures markets pointing for a flat, to a flat open for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Time's coming up to 8.09 and it's the Enzio and the Shark Show this morning. We have with us personal wealth advisor Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us is Le Char, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. Morning, Shark. Morning. Um, let's start with the Fed Minutes. Um, they show uh, the policymakers at the last meeting in early May debating the need for more rate hikes than currently anticipated. Fed officials discussed making multiple 50 basis point rate increases at the next several meetings to tackle surging inflation. And they also noted that policy may have to move past the neutral level, which is the rate at which is neither accommodative or restrictive to economic growth. Um, for last week, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said it would take clear and convincing evidence that inflation was coming down to the Fed's 2% target before the rate increases will stop. Um, NGO, that suggests to me that the, uh, the rate increases aren't going to stop for quite a while. What do you think? Well, I think this is about as effective as the Trump hearings about the Capitol Hill riots. In other words, it will go on and on and on. The fact is having done some numbers this morning, that the Fed has been loosening, yes, loosening, not tightening. What I mean by that is that the real Fed funds rate is negative 7%. In other words, it's very, very loose. And just to explain that to listeners, that comes from taking the Fed funds rate and subtracting inflation from it. That's, That's you... correct. So the inflation rate of 8% and the Fed funds minus the Fed funds rate of 1% equals minus 7%. Absolutely. And the other point, important point is that we always talk about this quantitative tightening whereby the Fed is reducing its balance sheet. Well, actually, if you start doing the numbers, and I couldn't get enough zeros on my calculator, the poor thing, this morning, it comes out, it turns out that the 
tightening equates to about 6.6% of the Fed's balance sheet and an eye-popping 0.3% put on your safety straps of the total M2 of $22 trillion. So I don't quite see where the tightening is and all this anguishing and gnashing, gee, maybe above the neutral rate. Well, Paul Volcker pushed the stuff up to 19% and then he Mm. stopped. So... The Fed is obviously concerned about inflation because the word inflation is mentioned 60 times in this statement. It's at a 41-year high Mm. of 8.3%. Why doesn't the Fed do more like what Paul Volcker did in the 70s? Because it, first of all, isn't differentiating the types of inflation. It's a bit like saying to Shark here over over next next to me that he speaks pretty good Chinese. It's about as stupid as he's saying to me, I speak pretty good European. Um, (laughs) So they're not differentiating between the types of inflation. And because of that, they're not going to get anywhere because it's like trying to repair a car engine with knitting needles. If you're doing supply bottlenecks by by raising interest rates, you're going Mm -hmm. to reduce supply bottlenecks. Go figure. Explain that one to me. I don't know how that works. Shark, um, is this statement telling us anything that we didn't know already? Uh, I think that now people expect uh, they are going to accelerate because, uh, uh, as you said, this, uh, they are seriously like behind the market, right? So they need to push up their interest rate as soon as possible, maybe not to the level to make the real interest rate to be positive. But uh, anyway, I think that they need to uh, hike the interest rate more aggressively. Uh, so that means I think this kind of a memo is uh, quite uh, in line with uh, people's expectation. And can they do that without tipping the economy into recession, do you think? Yeah, this, uh, I don't know, but uh, I... I we have talked about this one again and again, but I think the chance to have another recession is very high. So look at uh, the U.S. Uh, equity market, uh, including the bond market, because uh, you cannot maintain this financial stability and high interest rate, and then you can have a very good economy. I think uh, it's very difficult to manage all these three things at the same mm-hmm. time. Peter, I agree if I may just butt in, because also the the risk of overshoot has always been there when the Fed's been Mm. on a tightening cycle. The other thing is that there's going to be a massive liquidity crisis in the Treasury market, so I gather, and that's not going to be so much fun as of June of this year. Let me ask you both then. I mean, you, you both agree that the Fed is, um, is, is a bit impotent here because it's got a sort of inflation Mm. that it's difficult to fight. So what about fiscal measures instead? The IMF is calling for countries to subsidise the cost of living for the hardest hit. Will will that work? Will that help um, alleviate inflation or at least help people cope with what is a a cost of living crisis? Well, it's helped them cope so much that that they don't feel that they need to work in America anymore. So you have twice as many job vacancies as unemployed running around because people don't want to work. So I guess that's kind of a little bit cockeyed, but that drives up wage rates precisely because the the, the people willing to work, forget all this labor force gibberish, the people willing to work is reduced. And so there are fewer people who can then say, well, I will demand my wages that I want. So also, given the current circumstance, uh, can you expect to this uh, U.S. Congress to pass any laws about this one? Mm. (laughs) Very good Mm. point. Well, what about then? Here's another possibility. What about price controls? I know in these days of laissez-faire markets and economics, uh, people don't like that. But I remember when I was living in the UK back in the 1970s, they were quite common. Uh, Would that work to stop prices going up so much? Not with your inflation rate today, buddy. Why not? 
Well, because I mean, they, they, the inflation rate is. I, I just don't think it's, it's like putting a kettle on a lid. It's like the prohibition in America where they forbade mm. alcohol, or in America you can't drink until you're a certain age. I think it's 18, I may be wrong, but you can buy a gun. So the aggression just goes out and backfires through another, through another set of cylinders. What do you think, Shark? Price controls? Um, Some countries have started talking about it. Mexico has, for example, although they're talking about it, voluntary price controls, but would they work? Uh, I think that for short term, maybe, but uh, I think in the long run, I don't think this kind of the price control will play any uh, any role because so we have seen this one uh, but just back a few years ago in Argentina, they implement this uh, price mm. control. But what happened now? <laughs> the inflation is still very high. So and yes. also, especially, it's not a, I think it's not a type for United States. I think United States people, they hate this kind of price control. Control, idea. yeah, it's, it's yeah. Not, it goes against the drain. Okay. okay, I want to turn to China because there was a very important meeting, um, a surprise meeting, actually, because it, it was held very suddenly, a national level virtual meeting on economic stabilization measures. Vice Premiers Liu He and Han Zheng was there. PBOC Governor Yi Gang was there. There was estimated about 100,000 local officials across the country attended, and it was carried by state TV. I want to tell you a little bit about what Premier Li Keqiang said at it. He said the mainland economy uh, could struggle to receive uh, record positive growth this quarter. He urged officials to help companies resume production after the uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns. He said progress is not satisfactory. He said some provinces reporting that only 30% of businesses have reopened. And he said that's got to be raised to 80% within a short period of time. He said we will try and make sure the economy grows in the second quarter. Um, But he said that's not a high target and it's a far cry from our 5.5% goal that we have to do so. And he also said the economy was in some ways worse than it had been at the start of the pandemic in 2020, he noted that unemployment for young people was over 18%. He said corporate liquidations have surged more than 23% year on year, with small uh, private businesses being very hard hit. Power generation, freight transport, new bank loans all fell um, in the first half um, of May. This sounds very much to me like uh, officials have grabbed the hammer, smashed the glass and pressed the emergency um, button. They seem to be almost in a panic now over the state of the economy. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the, now they are telling the truth. And according to what we have seen, this economic is in a very bad situation now in China because of these uh, lockdowns, because of the other uh, these are COVID-19 related, uh, uh, related uh, matters. Uh, that's why the, the Chinese government, they, they try to make some move to, to break the ice, <laughs> okay? Because in the past, uh, they, uh, although they said they are going to uh, push forward some measures to stimulate the economy, but so far people, they, uh, at the local level, I think they are still confused. They don't know how to balance uh, these uh, COVID-19 things and these uh, economic stimulus. So that's why they have such a meeting. But unfortunately, uh, so my comment is uh, uh, what they can help is uh, very limited for two points. The first one, the if you look at all the matter, they didn't include the most important one. That's uh, many people now are trying to uh, they try to propose these ideas because they need to distribute the money directly to household sector, right? Which they've always um, been reluctant to do, haven't they? Exactly. They've distributed they have money been... to businesses, but not uh, households to spend. 
Yes, exactly. That's my first point. The second one is uh, if you look at the Chinese uh, political agenda, they are going to have this uh, national uh, party's national congress uh, in mm. autumn. So. Uh, I think the, now the, the, the head of this uh, local government, I mean the party secretary, they're more worried about uh, this uh, COVID-19 things rather than the economy. Economy mm. is uh, long-term things, okay? Even this year, you cannot very, uh, get good economy growth, but next year you can expect to get back. But if you have some problem with this uh, COVID-19, look at what happened in Shanghai. So mm. I think the, all these uh, local government head, they are more worried about these uh, COVID-19 things. Uh, even uh, the uh, the, the premier, yeah. the, he, he tried to encourage people to do more to stimulate the economy. But at the same time, I think that they must uh, keep very vigilant on these uh, COVID-19 things. That means uh, maybe we are going to see more lockdowns because you cannot expect how this virus will develop in yeah. China. So, yeah, that's my, my worries. If they're going to try this stimulus, though, there's no point, is there? Well, everyone's locked down. There's no point giving people checks or digital money direct into their bank accounts if they can't go out and spend it. Well, it's like making a 50-yard dash in a 49-yard gym. You're going to hit the wall. Well, you put you took the words out of my foot, Peter. Absolutely. <laughs> and so um, I'm, I'm with with Shark on this one totally because I also don't speak the language and can't read it. I'm illiterate in Chinese, thank heavens. But um, or not thank heavens. But I do find that the um, it's just defining you know who is the government and who are they. I think that those are key issues that need to be resolved. And let's, let's see whether at the party congress something, some resolution comes out. I don't know. But the obvious thing is stop the lockdowns, isn't it? It's what the markets want to see. It's what investors want to see. It's what more and more economists, even on the mainland, are calling for. Mm. And the only thing that's going to reverse this slump in the economy is an end to totally, the lockdowns. Totally. Because all, all the other measures are, that's this 50-yard dash to 49-yard gym. It's just not, it's, it's ineffectual. And mm. next to Shark's very good point about the non-distribution of income to the households. Unfortunately, this uh, lockdown so far is the most effective way to deal with this uh, COVID-19 yes. spread. Mm. <laughs> so that's why they, how they balance these two. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there was also, he said something interesting, which uh, pricked up my ears, he, because he, um, he, he talked about provinces that have been appealing to the central government for financial assistance, um, but he didn't provide much comfort to them. He said Beijing's resources were limited. He said, I'm here to let you know my bottom line. There is a reserve fund managed by the Premier. Other than that, local governments must raise funds by themselves. Now, first, first of all, I didn't realise there was a reserve fund uh, for this. I don't know, Shark and Enzio, if you've come across it before and how big it is. But also, he seems to be basically saying to the local governments, you're on your own here. Uh, yes, but I think eventually, because uh, all these uh, local government, in fact, they are branches of the central government. They don't have their uh, own responsibilities. Mm. Uh, eventually, if they find this a uh, fiscal problem, they will go to uh, central government uh, for for funding. But of course, uh, it seems that uh, they want to encourage this uh, local government to take their own responsibility, not just uh, ask money for the central government. You need to find ways to solve the problem. Peter, if I may ask Shark something. So it's not like the federal and the state system in America where the states pretty much no. do their own thing. Okay, that's interesting. Useful. Have Useful. you come across this reserve fund before? Do you know anything about it? How yeah, big it is? I, I think they always uh, said this one and uh, they have uh, some small adjustment of, for that one. Uh, 
not every year, but uh, I think the most of the years that they will have uh, similar things. But this time, seriously, I think that they, what they're asking for is, uh, is a big number. So mm. then a small adjustment. So having held this big national level meeting, you've got vice premiers there, you've got the PBOC governor there, 100,000 officials. What do they do next to follow up? Is there going to be further easing? What, what, what are they going to do? Definitely, I think that they are going to do more easing, right, uh, on the monetary policy side and also on the fiscal policy side. But you made very good uh, point, man, uh, uh, point because uh, now the local government, they are constrained by their financial situation. I don't know to what extent they can stimulate through this uh, fiscal uh, policy. I think they just devote too much money to this uh, it's a P- PCR so, test. Yeah, so, <laughs> so they're really two constraints from, from what Shark is saying. One is, is the, the role of provinces in the, in the government that I wasn't aware of in that starkness in the, in the federal government. And secondly, of course, the COVID lockdown. So I'm afraid it's not exactly all guns, all, all steam ahead on the Chinese economy. Is there a chance that the Chinese economy, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of investment banks now are cutting growth for this quarter, mm. saying it's gone into contraction. Um, President Premier Li was saying it mm. himself. Is there a chance now that the Chinese economy could go into recession this year? Uh, technically, it is possible. I think because the second quarter, definitely we are going to have a negative quarter-on-quarter uh, mm. growth. But let's see what's going to happen in the third quarter. Hopefully things can become stabilized. But uh, yeah, the, the chance We're almost is, there uh, now, aren't yeah. they? We're yeah, almost no in the third quarter. No reason to stabilize, in my humble opinion. I, just to cite the FT, that the 7% slowdown um, plunged 7% in the first quarter of 2020. So that was the last time we had this big mm. sort of kahuna down. Um, I don't really. See, I don't think there's anything magic about the third quarter things stabilizing, um, okay. just because of that. So, well, thank you very much. Have a great week. That's Cynthia von Farl, our regular Thursday commentator, personal wealth advisor, and also Lashar, who's Asia chief economist at BBVA. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Coming up to 8.25, let's go over to Mumbai, India, and speak with Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, India's been uh, rolling out some measures uh, to try and insulate consumers from, uh, from rising prices. As we know, inflation in India is, uh, is surging um, as well. What, what sort of things have they announced? Yes, so uh, similar to the rest of the world, we've got inflation running hot at the moment in India at around 7.8% on the retail side. So in, in, along with the Reserve Bank's monetary policy uh, move on, on the repo rate uh, last month, uh, fiscal side, they're looking to curb um, the amount of exports uh, in some of the commodities, key commodities in India, including wheat, uh, most recently sugar and potentially rice. So sugar was announced yesterday. A limit of 10 million tons. India is the largest producer of sugar and the second largest exporter behind Brazil. So uh, this is an aim of, of uh, uh, capping prices on the domestic front which, uh, yeah. to help the consumer. It will also see some excise duty on petrol and diesel reduced, um, some lower import duties on raw materials for steel. So all of these measures, amongst a few others, are all aimed at trying to limit the price surges that are occurring on the domestic front uh, because ultimately... India is importing inflation due to the high commodity prices around the world. So these are the factors that are driving the decision-making of government right now. 
Now, these bans on sugar and wheat exports, they've caused quite a lot of concern elsewhere in the world because India is the second largest exporter of sugar after Brazil. This is only going to add to surging commodity prices globally, isn't it? Yeah, well, it certainly has an external impact. Uh, clearly, domestically, um, the balance for the India is to, to try to re- reduce the impact of imported inflation, and therefore, unfortunately, the balance comes out uh, on the out, on the external side because it forces prices up around the globe. So, clearly, it doesn't help uh, to to some extent from an external perspective, but um, from an Indian government perspective, they're you know very much focused about curbing prices as much as they can on the retail side, and really where they're aiming those moves. Is to help the consumer at the at the at the base level, mm. so the low income consumer uh, who needs to you know obviously these staples like sugar, wheat, uh, rice, uh, and also petrol and diesel um, to really try and help them at the at the hip pocket level. Now earlier this week, the IMF um, said governments should subsidise the cost of food and energy for the poorest members of society. She called on governments around the world to look at that. Is that something that India would consider? Do you think? Well, I think it, it absolutely. It, it you know, clearly, um, from a domestic perspective, that a, a, a large population that demands subsidisation on staples, uh, and uh, it's certainly within the government policy to do that. The difficulty, of course, is maintaining that. To, to how does that impact the government's fiscal position, so that they can continue to fund these type of initiatives? Mm. And this is where the battle will become much more uh, uh, prescient in terms of where the markets will be looking. Is how can governments continue to fund? Uh, these type of uh, uh, services where uh, they're borrowing more money, you know, at a time when interest rates are going up. So this will be the challenge for governments. I think the intent is there, but how can you finance it? Uh, if um, if your borrowing costs are going to continue to increase mm. uh, and you have to borrow more money, that has a downstream impact, of course. I, I saw an estimate that these, um, that these cuts in exercise duty on petrol and diesel um, could co- cost the government a, a loss of about $1 trillion Indian rupees. I haven't worked out what that is in US dollars, but it sounds a lot to me to lose in annual revenue. Yeah, looking at about the, yeah, uh, in terms of fiscal deficit, it's probably 40 to 50 basis points impact. So currently, fiscal deficit is scheduled around 6.5% in India. Uh, percent of GDP could go to sort of closer to seven. Um, about three or four lakh or what do we call it in terms of trillion INR uh, is about 38 billion USD. So it is a big impact, uh, but as I said, about 40 to 50 basis points on the deficit. At the moment, the government feels that the borrowing requirement won't be increased because of a higher revenue on the indirect side. So GST and other payments revenue seems higher than expected. But let's uh, let's be clear, it doesn't look like this inflation issue is going to be resolved quickly. So it would be expected that the government will need to borrow more over the year. And that will obviously downstream impact on uh, interest rates and also on the currency. Now, India's been having a heat wave, hasn't it? A, a two-month heat wave, particularly in the Delhi area. How much has that impacted um, sort of exports of, of food and, and crops and added to uh, sort of rising prices? So, yeah, I think in March was the hottest uh, in India since records were collected uh, in 1922. Uh, and uh, they've had, uh, in the pre-monsoon period, 71% less rain in the north. So... What's that impacted is, is production of key commodities, um, wheat, rice, uh, etc. But ultimately still a surplus, but obviously, as we discussed earlier, it has an impact on the external side in terms of limits on exports. So for the domestic uh, supply, it shouldn't have an impact, but the heat waves uh, are, are significant. Um, and 
normally uh, you get them every one of uh, five years. I think that's really about the cycle in India, but uh, the concern is that they're much more extensive now and uh, much more damaging. And uh, this one was particularly difficult, uh, although we're starting to see some shift now and some early pre-monsoon rains in the north um, with, the, with the Kerala monsoon or the southwest monsoon as we know it coming in early June uh, along uh, scheduled lines. Toby, thanks very much. Always good to talk to you. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. The ASX 200 down in Australia is up 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is also on the rise, up about 0.6%. The Cosby is up as well, also 0.6%, but looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng in just under an hour's time when trading gets going this morning. I'll have all the updates on the markets and other business news for you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock on Money Talk. Coming up next on Radio 3, the news, followed by the COVID updates with Jim Gould and Paul Zimmerman. The weather forecast. Going to be sunny periods and a few showers. Mist patches at first. It's going to be hot today. Maximum temperature of around uh, 30 degrees in the urban areas. A couple of degrees higher in the new territories. The outlook is for a few showers in the next couple of days. It's going to be hot with sunny periods early to midweek next week. The temperature right now is 26 degrees and it's 94% relative humidity. On 8.31, here's Andy Shirosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. President Xi Jinping has defended China's progress on human rights in a virtual meeting with UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet. She's visiting the country to try to establish the facts over Beijing's network of camps in Xinjiang. Aaron Tam reports. Michelle Bachelet's six-day trip, which began on Monday, includes a visit to the far west region, where her office last year said it believes Xinjiang's mostly Muslim ethnic Uyghurs have been unlawfully detained, mistreated and forced to work. Beijing denies the allegations. During the video call, President Xi told Ms. Bachelet that China's development of human rights suits its own national conditions and that among the various types of human rights, the rights to subsistence and development are vital for developing countries. Xinhua News Agency quoted Mr. Xi as saying that deviating from reality and copying wholesale the institutional model of other countries would not only fit badly with the local conditions, but also bring disastrous consequences. According to CCTV, Ms. Bachelet said the UN Human Rights Office is willing to strengthen cooperation with Beijing and make joint efforts to promote the progress of the global human rights cause. All 19 children and two teachers killed by a gunman at a Texas elementary school were shot dead in the same classroom in which they were locked by the gunman. 18-year-old Salvador Ramos was killed by police. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has given more details of the attacker's movements before the shooting. As of this time, the only information that was known in advance was posted by the gunman on Facebook approximately 30 minutes before reaching the school. The first post was, he said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The second post was, I shot my grandmother. The third post, maybe less than 15 minutes before arriving at the school, was, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. Mr. Abbott's press conference was interrupted by his Democratic challenger in November's midterm election. Beto O'Rourke accused his rival of doing nothing to prevent gun crime. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has rejected calls for his resignation after an official report by a civil servant blamed leadership failings for a series of lockdown-breaking parties in and around Downing Street. 
Zhao Twyman from the UK Public Opinion Consultancy gave a view of the general mood among British voters. People feel very strongly and continue to feel very strongly about the behaviour of all political parties, but particularly the Conservatives and particularly the Prime Minister. Prior to the Prime Minister receiving his fines, six out of ten of the general public said that if he did receive a fine, he should resign. And more recently, other polls have shown that six out of ten people believe that he should now resign as a result of Sue Gray's report. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Paul Zimmerman. Good morning, Paul.